Hello, welcome to Secure Talk, your trusted source of information on the latest threats, trends, tools, and technology related to cybersecurity. Hello, everybody. Welcome to Secure Talk. My name is Mark Schreiner, and I will be your host for this episode of Secure Talk. Today, we're going to be talking to Mr. Dan Draper, who is the CEO and founder of Cypherstash which is a data storage platform for sensitive data. We're going to talk a little bit about uh, what Cyberstash does. Um, we're going to talk to, about some, you know, why data security is even more crucial now than ever before. Uh, the importance of how de of developers having a good understanding of cryptography and more. But before we do that, let's welcome Dan. Dan, how are you today? I'm great, Mark. Happy to be here. Yeah, How are you? it was a uh, better now that we that I figured out my uh, my technical challenges and as I as I just said kind of off off the air that uh, the solution was ultimately to reboot the age old solution <laughs> age old solution right and uh, I, maybe I should go into IT support I don't know <laughs> you don't want to do that trust me no <laughs> so hey Dan um, I, I can tell by your accent you're not from these parts where where are, where are you from indeed yeah I'm I'm an Aussie. Uh, I, maybe perhaps I should have said g'day uh, when I when I joined, but it's actually not a thing I say very often. Um, I, I live. You're, you're, you're disappointing all the Americans in the audience. They, <laughs> yeah. they grew they grew up with Crocodile Dundee, you know. Right, right. <laughs> I mean, there I have definitely met people like that here in Australia, but it's uh, not 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 so much in these parts. Uh, so I'm, I'm I'm in Sydney, which is, you know, a city of five million people. Um, I grew up in a small town in the south of Australia, um, near near the capital city called Adelaide, which probably most people have never heard of, um, but uh, have also spent lots of time in the US, lived in New York for a while, spent lots of time in Silicon Valley. So um, home away from home, so to speak. Awesome. Um, well, you know, I, I've spent about 20 plus years overseas, uh, including as far south as, you know, four years in Singapore, never made it to Australia. Oh, no. um, and it's on my, it's on my list. Obviously, during COVID, that was a no-fly zone for well, the, Australia and New Zealand were both kind of no-fly zones for the for anybody from outside the, the, those areas. Yeah, we but, locked things uh, down hard. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I, I just uh, kind of a general question before we get started: Are things opening up now for you guys? Yeah, they're starting to. I mean, life life here, you know, living living here in the cities are, you know, it's basically back to normal. You know, my wife is a is a musician. She plays. She's a DJ. She plays in clubs. And she's been out playing and the clubs have been full and, you know, things are, things are coming back to normal. I think it's still slightly challenging to travel internationally, but you can definitely do it now. Um, so, yeah, I was, things are heading in the right direction, finally. I was just in L.A. last weekend and I met a couple uh, from, from Australia and they, they, yeah, they were here on a business slash kind of, um, you know, fun trip. And they were, yeah, they, they said no problem for them to fly in and out. I, they weren't sure about non-Australian citizens, but um, for them, mm. it was uh, much easier. Anyway, hey, I got to ask you another question. Uh, you know, a lot of the technology for cybersecurity comes out of, you mentioned Silicon Valley. Um, mm. There's a lot of companies, uh, startups in Israel, um, Eastern Europe as, as well. What's the scene like in Australia? The scene in Australia right now is, I would say it's blossoming. Um, there's some fantastic companies. I mean, you've probably heard of um, some of our major major success stories like Atlassian and Canva, but there's yep. certainly a, a burgeoning startup scene here in Australia. Um, in fact, a lot of the, so so technically, funnily enough, Cyphersdash is now a US headquartered company. We we did what we call flipping up. So we have a US, US head company and 
an Australian subsidiary. Um, so I've been speaking to a lot of American investors. But what I find really interesting is that so many US VCs now are focused on Australia because they see it as, as one of the kind of next up and coming um, boom markets to invest in. So there's a lot happening here. There's, there's lots more capital than there used to be. And there's some um, really, really interesting businesses coming out of the scene. Well, that's uh, exciting for you. Indeed. <laughs> T- tell me, uh, before we get into, you know, Cyberstash in particular, uh, you know, I mean, everybody knows that um, protecting your data is important. But in my show notes here, it mentioned that, you know, you're of the belief that data security is more crucial now than ever before. Why is that? I think we're at a time in history where we rely on technology more than we ever have. Um, I, I don't know about you, Mark, but I couldn't do anything in my life without having some sort of internet connected device, whether it's a phone or a laptop. Uh, and that means that every time we interact with technology, we're storing some sort of data, not even necessarily consciously, it might be data that we don't even intend to have recorded about us. And behind every one of those systems that we interact with, there is a bit of software that a a developer wrote, uh, or a team of developers, more likely. Um, And it's like the data that we store, the data that gets it's managed by these, these systems and ultimately the developers that built these systems. It's kind of like uranium. You know, it's incredibly powerful uh, when used correctly, but can be horrendously dangerous when not. And uh, we've got to start thinking about this very, very seriously, or we're going to, going to end up with, um, you know, radioactive waste everywhere, <laughs> to, to extend the analogy. When we definitely don't want that. Um, no, I totally agree with you. It's funny. You, you can't even get your gutters cleaned without going online and ordering. And then they, you know, your invoice comes through their portal and they, they've captured all your information and, and who's actually providing their platform or servicing their platform. And it, it, you just, you, you kind of have to assume that whatever you're putting out there to some degree is going to be leaked. You, you know, you don't right. want to, uh, I'm talking about from a consumer's point of view, right? Mm. Uh, but from a developer's point of view, um, you, you obviously you want your platform, to, whatever you're working on, to to work effectively to meet the business requirements. But these days, you do need to be increasingly aware of security and building security into you know the the the, the platform or you know into your your DevOps. W- w- explain to me the importance of of developers having a good understanding of cryptography. Right. This is a really interesting problem. You know, when I started developing uh, professionally in the early 2000s, um, life as a developer was really quite simple. We didn't have to think about a whole lot. Nowadays, I feel I feel sorry for developers in some ways um, because there's so many things to be aware of. You you obviously have to understand product requirements and business needs. You've got to develop something that's that's fast, easy to use. Uh, hopefully, you're thinking about things like accessibility. Um, cross-platform support, and and of course, at the heart of all of this is security. And and security is not something that developers have, I think, historically, certainly in my experience, given a lot of thought to. It's it tends to be this this pushback from security teams or or auditors and so forth, saying, "Hey, hey, team, we've we've got to we've got to fix this problem. This is not very secure." And developers kind of groan and roll their eyes and say, "Okay, right, yep. Well, that means we're going to have to delay the release by a, a month or whatever to fix these issues." Uh, and I think this this dichotomy is is um, it's a real challenge for our industry. Now you mentioned cryptography. Cryptography is is one of 
the best ways, if if not arguably the best way, uh, to deal with um, with with data security in, in an application. And I think one of the ways in which this this challenge between software engineers and security teams plays out is is in the use of cryptography. And what makes that so difficult, I think, is that cryptography is it's a very subtle science. It's the kind of thing that it might appear that you're doing the right thing. You know, you, you take a value, you've, you've got a key, you encrypt it, and the output looks like junk. It looks like random bits and bytes, and I can't distinguish that from, from uh, a readable bit of information. You go, cool, all right, that's encrypted, no worries. The problem is that experienced cryptographers or, or hackers know where the sharp edges are. So you might think that something's encrypted correctly, but if they see enough data that's been encrypted, they can decrypt it, or they might be able to find some trick that reveals information about the data that, that your average developer would can, never even consider. Can you give an example of what that would actually look like? Yeah, Because in, in my, in my um, non-technical mind, if something's encrypted, it's locked up, man. And right. unless you've got uh, these... Uh, Next next gen computers that we're talking about, there's no way somebody's going to be able to you know hack that. So so explain to me how that works. Yeah, let, let me give you one example, and I'll, I'll give you a real a real world scenario. It was a company that I worked with uh, a few years ago. I won't I won't name names, um, but I was working in it was an industry where there was lots of sensitive data, and one of the developers in the team had implemented a, a piece of cryptography. It's, it uses a, a, a thing called a block cipher, the advanced encryption standard. And they were encrypting um, sensitive, sensitive records with that. Now, one of the little subtleties about using the, um, the AES standard is that you must use what's called an initialization vector every time you encrypt a value. And the developer had uh, essentially hard-coded this initialization vector. Sorry to talk a bit technically for a second. But the developer didn't realize that actually, instead of hard coding, the IV, the initialization vector, should be different every single time you encrypt. Now, because it wasn't, the, the way that this encryption worked ended up being what's called a deterministic cipher. So that means if I take, say, your email address, uh, I'll just use marketexample.com, and I encrypt it using a deterministic cipher, that means it's always going to be the same output ciphertext. It's random, it looks like random bytes, but it's going to be the same random bytes every time we encrypt that value. Uh, and an attacker, clever attacker, will, will find the database and say, hey, these, these random bytes, they look like random bytes, but actually it's the same random bytes every single time when we see this record. And so then what they can do is they go, and go to, a, to the application and they go and sign up. They sign up with your email address. And then they see that the same random bytes have now appeared in the database that they've just compromised. And oh, wait a minute, we've seen these random bytes before. We know the random bytes that we've just signed uh, that resulted from that sign up with this email address that we provided. So now every time we see that set of random bytes in the database, we know that that's Mark. Um, so this is what's called a chosen plain text attack. And, and it occurred in, in this situation that, uh, with the developer that I was working with purely because uh, this person didn't realize that you had to have a, a random, unique initialization vector every time you encrypted. And in, in this person's defense, the documentation wasn't very clear about it. Very talented developer, just didn't understand cryptography well enough to realize how utterly broken uh, the system had now become. To, to the right eyes, you know, it's, it's not obvious to an untrained person, but for motivated attackers, uh, that's, a, that's a really good advantage for them. No, that, that makes a, a lot of sense. And I think 
I mean, that's one of the challenges that we face that we're, you know, you're, if you're a security engineer or you're responsible for security, you get these tools and you use these processes, but unless you're a deep subject matter expert, there's always a, a chance that you may be leaving the back door open somehow, right? Yeah. Hey, I've, I've, I bought the latest technology. I've got it turned on, but you just never really know unless you, unless you have that deep domain expertise. Exactly. And I think it's one of, it's one of the biggest challenges for, for the industry as a whole, because frankly, the vast majority of folks in the industry, even experienced developers don't understand cryptography particularly well. I think there's this sense that we sort of say, right, that's, that's encrypted. So it's secure, right? Box checked. Now, uh, there are many examples throughout history, um, recent history where, where that has actually proven to be very much not the case. And I think the, this comes down to it, the people that are making the libraries that use cryptography or the systems that, that, that are made available to developers comes down to us to make sure that it's impossible for, for, for a developer to make mistakes that they make, right? Like it's, it's, this, it's the user experience from, from a developer perspective. Um, we call it um, the, the well of success. Even if you, even if you stuff up and you fall, uh, you're kind of you're kind of falling up, so it means that you know it's much much harder for developers to make the kind of mistakes that they have done in the past. Now, is that related to CyberStash's solution? Indeed, it is. Yeah, um, I mean, our mission is to make the best possible security available to all developers um, using what we call searchable encryption. So, you know, there's there's a bit to unpack in our solution, but certainly uh, making it very, very easy for developers to do the right thing, even if they don't fully understand what's going on under the hood, uh, is incredibly important. So, so walk me through a scenario of how a developer would use your tool. Right. So um, we've we've developed um, some some tools, uh, kinds of tools that developers love to use. So we, we, we've developed um, a command line interface, very simple command line interface, similar to, to how anyone would use a traditional database. We've used a, a software development kit uh, we created a, a, an SDK for it and have spent a lot of time uh, researching how engineers will typically build products and where uh, where encryption is misused in particular, but, but also other, other sort of um, technical mistakes that can lead to vulnerabilities uh, and made a library that um, I wouldn't. I wouldn't go so far as saying it completely eliminates mistakes. It would be. It would be foolish of me to say that there's a there's a perfect security model out there, but it dramatically reduces the chance of a developer making a silly mistake that uh, you know they might have made with other kinds of approaches. And I, does the does the system or the tool kind of learn from the interaction with different developers, or you kind of uh, how do you how do you identify common mistakes, etc., and kind of keep that updated? Um, it's, it's not so much about learning and, and, and identifying mistakes. It's, it's more about, so, so one of the things that makes SafeStash interesting, um, is that we use what's called the disaggregated architecture. So you think about how a traditional database works. Uh, we should explain a bit more about what SafeStash really is in a moment, but you think about a traditional database, uh, it's kind of, it kind of violates all of the rules that we think about as security folks. Uh, you know, two, two of the key rules that I think about when I think about secure systems is this idea of least privilege and reduced surface mm -hmm. area. So least privilege means that no one system should provide everything 
Um, and only the people that need access to particular things should have access to what they need. So need to know basis. And yet with traditional databases, once somebody has access to your database, they essentially have access to everything. They've got keys to the kingdom. Um, they've got access to data. There's potentially password hashes stored in those systems and so forth. And so one of the things that we've, we've done with Cyphestash is split that up. So authentication is managed by one system. Your keys, your encryption keys are managed by a totally different system. The data is stored in another system again. And so that way, uh, you know, as much work and effort we put into making the libraries and the interface really, really simple and kind of easy to stuff up, uh, hard to stuff up. Um, even if there was a mistake, it would be impossible for an attacker to take advantage of that because of this disaggregated architecture. Even if an attacker compromised your core data service, the Cypestash data service, they would now also need to go ahead and, and uh, compromise the key management system, which is independent, and the authentication system, which is independent. So. It's kind of this idea of, you know, mitigating accidental issues is built right into the architecture. So that the the ergonomics of the the code base and the SDK is one part of it, but it's it's sort of more fundamental than that. Yeah. So that desegregated architecture is is very important, and and it aligns very nicely with least privilege. Hmm. And, and using your platform, though, what happens if some a developer needs to elevate their access level? Um, is there an approval process, or how does that work? Um, so, Cypestash is not opinionated about that, uh, to be frank. So, we we rely on um, the the integrations that we've built. So, so we talked about um, you know separating key management, and separating authentication. Um, if you're a Cypestash customer we wouldn't manage those systems for you. So you would use something like Amazon's key management service or uh, Azure's key vault, uh, and you would, you would manage that, um, that process independently. Um, so whatever, whatever systems you've got as an organization to, to, to control access, you, you can manage yourself. Um, and then similarly with your authentication system. So we've uh, you know, integrated with Auth0. We're working on an Okta integration. I know they're on the headlines at the moment. Um, and so uh, we encourage customers to to follow best practices in, in that regard. Okay, so let's let's go back and talk a little bit more exactly what Cyberstash does. Okay, and why don't you just like walk us through a couple of use cases? Yeah, so Cyberstash started really because when I was uh, when I was a CTO at a variety of different companies over the years, I was often asked how do we protect data for customers and. I never felt like we had a really great answer, to be honest. Um, and it wasn't a consequence of the company I was working in. It was a really consequence of the technology. You think about how developers um, store data in a database. There's, there's, there's really, how do you encrypt that data? How do you, how do you secure that data? And one way is to, uh, to encrypt every, every record in the database. So if you've got a database full of records, um, you want to encrypt it with a key that you control, that's great for security. It, it, it's a really good way to protect the data. But it comes with a really major drawback. So I'll give you an example. Uh, you've got a patient's database with healthcare information in it. And uh, I, want to, I want to find a patient by their social security number. Or I want to find all patients uh, over the age of 40 or who have visited the practice in the last 30 days. If all those records are fully encrypted uh, using traditional techniques, I can't perform those kinds of queries. And so, the sad reality, certainly from my um, experience in the industry, but also through our very 
direct product research over the last uh, couple of years, most organizations simply don't encrypt their databases. And that's because they, it takes away critical functionality. So Sykestash is the, the antidote to that. Um, because we use this technology, we call it searchable encryption. Um, it's a technology that's been around a little while, but there's been some really interesting advances over the last couple of years that, that makes, uh, makes what we're doing possible. Um, and so it allows you to fully encrypt your data, but also retain the ability to perform the kinds of queries that, that uh, are frankly necessary to run your business. Um, and we use, uh, we use a, this technique where the actual queries themselves are also encrypted. So Sykestash never sees any data whatsoever. We just see random bits and bytes. Okay, but then, so uh, the, the end user, the person doing the query, mm-hmm. um, they're, they're going to type in what they're looking for. Okay, that's going to be unencrypted, by, but, but at the start. And then it, it's going to be encrypted as it's, the query's fed to the database, I'm assuming. Um, you have to walk us through that. The, the results, the data that's at rest and, and being queried is encrypted. When you pull the results out, though, then is it just, it's unencrypting for that single viewer there. Um, and it, I mean, how explain how that's working. Yeah, sure. So um, let's imagine a scenario where a, a user has a mobile device. So they're sitting on their iPhone uh, and they're making queries. So to that user, this process, the encryption is, is completely abstract. They don't, they don't know that it's happening. But your, your uh, mobile device, so there's a few different scenarios this can play out, but a common one is the iPhone in that situation, as soon as you type a query, would encrypt that query, would send the query to, uh, to Sifestash. Sifestash would take the encrypted query, uh, work its magic, so to speak. So it would, would perform that encrypted query using a, a special technique, technique called order revealing encryption um, to the other data encrypted records in the database, would send back an encrypted response um, to the iPhone, and then the iPhone would decrypt that encrypted response and then show it to the user. So essentially, um, that means that nothing uh, leaving the device is ever uh, unencrypted coming into the no- device as well. Got you. Okay. And you you mentioned a term that sounds fascinating. It's uh, what did you call it? Auto o- order or- revealing encryption. Yeah. So, yes. so this is um, uh, it's it's a technique that was pioneered um, you know about five or six years ago. In particular, there was a, a paper published um, by two researchers at, at Stanford University, uh, one of whom is actually now an advisor to our business, uh, a gentleman called Dr. David Wu. Um, and this, this paper, they called it uh, Block Order Revealing Encryption, um, was a, a, essentially a new technique to provide the, the, the ability to do range queries and, um, uh, and similar queries over encrypted data. And I, when I just stumbled across this paper, I was I was dumbstruck. I thought this was this was uh, incredibly powerful technique, and, and was surprised that no one else was using it. And what I realized is that as powerful as this technique is, it's incredibly fast, it's very secure, it's incredibly difficult to apply it to traditional databases. I can't ta- ta- just go and take a Microsoft SQL Server, install an ORE library, and, and hope that it's all going to work. Uh, it's much more complicated than that. And so I, after discovering the paper, I spent the next three or four years uh, just working in my, my spare time after hours, trying to find a way to make a, a database based on this technology. Um, and thankfully in, in 2020, uh, I, I got a working prototype, I was successful, and then Sifestash was born. 
Fascinating. And I, I, I would like to learn more about how auto-revealing encryption works. I mean, because if it's encrypted, how are you able to, I, I just don't get it, right? So, <laughs> so can you just give us a little bit more of a, a, a you know, deeper understanding of how it's going to work? Yeah, certainly. Um, I mean, there's a, there's a lot of math in, involved and it's, it's, a, it's a difficult concept to, to kind of boil down to a few sentences. In fact, one of, one of my lead engineers uh, said it took him about three months to fully understand it. Um, well, we, we, we only have about another 15 minutes. So. Yeah, <laughs> I'll, try to give you, I'll try to give you the 20 second version. So in a, in a nutshell, uh, it's using a, a cryptographic technique that reveals only one very particular property about two bits of information. So you have a query, what we call a ciphertext, funnily enough, that's where the name ciphertext comes from. It's where you stash your ciphertext. Um, you have a ciphertext query, which is fully encrypted, and then you have a ciphertext record in a database. Now you want to know if that query matches that record. Um, and actually, you don't need to reveal a lot of information or learn a lot of information in order to perform that query. You just need to know whether the query equals, or in the case of range queries, is more than or less than uh, the record in the database. And so order of really encryption, essentially, you provide uh, a function, a cryptographic function, that reveals whether or not an encrypted query is equal to, less than, or more than an encrypted record in the database. Um, as you can imagine, that function is highly mathematical and quite complex. So I won't try to explain it, but based on that one primitive, uh, you can build up much more complex query structures. So you can do all kinds of interesting queries, the kinds of queries that you might be familiar with uh, if you've developed in databases before. Yeah, I know this is not the right analogy, but for me in my um, my little brain, it, I, I think of like, XML tagging, for example, and if I'm looking for certain th th certain things in a database, um, and if it's all been tagged, uh, I, I can query that. And I don't know if you can tag data that's been encrypted if the tags show up, but but what you're saying is there's there's a mathematical way to kind of understand what that what types of data that is, and then when you run the query, it's gonna pull that back through right the tagging the tagging analogy is not a bad one to be honest you can think of these these order of revealing encrypted values as as kind of tags in a way yeah okay well as long as it wasn't a terrible analogy <laughs> okay, i'll go with that so let's move on for a second let me ask you i mean why don't you tell us a little bit about what stage in the um the, you know the the business development cycle cypherstash is in you know uh how is 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 your solution being received in the market and um, you know what does a typical typical engagement look like? Right. Yeah. I mean, so we we launched the uh, the business in um, in early 2021. Um, I, I you know the the old startup founder story. I quit my job and went full time on the on the business. Um, we raised um, a reasonable amount of money last year, so we did a seed round. Uh, it was about two and a half million seed round. We did a pre seed as well, so we raised about three million dollars all up. It's US dollars. Um, and uh, using that money, we've, we've built out this platform. Um, and actually, as it turns out, you can now go and sign up. You can go to cyphestash.com um, and C-I-P-H-E-R-S-T-A-S-H.com. Um, and you can self-serve. In fact, what's interesting about Cyphestash is, you know, we talk about developers a lot. And developers 
don't like cold calls. I mean, nobody really likes cold <laughs> calls, let's be honest, but, but, but developers, uh, much less than anyone else, I think, you can't apply a traditional sales model to when selling to developers. And we speak to a lot of CTOs and chief information security officers and so forth, and we kind of uh, you know, work through, work through the process from, from that angle, but, but ultimately it's developers who we want to serve. And so we've made Sifestash um, self-service. Um, so you can you can go and sign up. You can download the SDK, set it up yourself, and and start writing code uh, using Cypestash. You know, within within 20 minutes or so, it's very easy to get started. Um, and uh, you know, so we're continuing to to build a product. Um, the the kinds of companies that are really interested in what we're doing uh, range from small startups that that are working in financial services, insurance tech, health tech, all the way up to large enterprise. So. Uh, and even governments actually we've 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 spoken to the australian government we have some uh interesting opportunities emerging in defense department of defense here in australia and even in the us um there were there are there are longer processes as you might imagine but uh, they are particularly interested in, in what we have to do uh what we have to offer sorry uh in terms of securing intelligence data and the like um and you know the needs the needs are very different between between these organizations. A small startup can, is concerned about uh, compliance, dealing with compliance requirements. Uh, they are concerned about the negative effects or impacts on the business of a data breach. They want to try and mitigate that. Um, governments and big corporates have very different needs, as you might imagine. But at the heart of everything is this this idea that data is significantly better protected. Uh, and so that's why they're all equally interested in Cyberstash. Yeah, I mean, if you've got a better way to secure data, I'm sure you'll have plenty of interest. What what is your uh, what's your biggest challenge as a as a startup in the security space? I think one of the one of the uh, there are many challenges, of course, but probably one of the one of the notable ones uh, is that technology is complex i know that sounds like such a trope i mean we we, we struggled with uh, with getting a video call working uh, this morning but uh what i mean by that is that you go into an organization and you want to apply techniques like the ones we use at cyberstash and every organization is different there's different languages there's different database technologies there's different deployment architectures there's different clouds um and trying to find uh a set of tools that can kind of universally fit into those uh, all those myriad environments is very challenging. Um, and so, frankly, we're not trying to to do all of that right now. We're focused on some very specific um, technology stacks and and use cases. So, we're very focused on the Amazon Web Services. We we do plan on moving into Azure, um, but frankly, we haven't had a huge demand for Azure so far. Um, focused on some of the more contemporary um you know developer languages like like typescript javascript ruby those kinds of things and but we also have had requests to make a java client so we'll do that um so just i guess finding the following the opportunities uh identifying the technology that those opportunities um implement uh, and then working doing our best to support the, the those particular technologies we can't support everything and and perhaps never will so so that certainly is a challenge it makes a lot of sense. I, I've worked with a, a few start, startups myself, 
And um, one of the biggest challenges is, is sometimes having to say no to a potential customer to say, right. you know, we'd love to help you, but we really need to f focus on our core right now. And our core right now is A, and if we get pulled over to B, um, we're, we're going to fail at both. So, um, but it's tough when you're, it's you so know, cause you want those, it's not just the revenues, you, you want those reference customers, you know, you want to be, get that visibility out in the marketplace, but sometimes you have to stick to your guns. Yeah, I mean, it comes down to repeatability in many ways. You know, if you can't, if, if you're going to build a system or, or build some customizations for a customer, if you don't have another, you know, five or six customers kind of waiting in the wings with those same challenges, then you really have to ask yourself whether that's something you should do, at least at least right now. Exactly. Hey, Dan, I got to ask you, um, I know that you're also uh, active in terms of, you know, promoting uh, diversity in the uh, the IT space. Uh, you are the executive producer of a film called Debugging Diversity um, that explores why there are so few women in technology. And I, can we just talk a few minutes about that? Certainly, yeah. Um, so uh, <laughs> Debugging Diversity, it's, it's, it's an interesting one. It's, you probably wouldn't expect uh, not only um, a startup, a startup uh, CEO, but, but also a white guy, a white straight guy uh, to build, a, to, to make a, a show about uh, diversity in tech. But I, I realized a number of years ago um, that, you know, we're, we're trying to encourage more women to, to come into the technology industry. We're trying to better support women and minorities in the, in the technology industry. And yet, in many ways, it's sort of been left up to them uh, to solve the problem themselves. And yet, they are not the ones that kind of currently lead the industry. So I saw so myself... Can we, can we Go ahead. Sorry. Can we? Yeah, I, mean, I, I apologize for cutting you off. Um, I just like to get your point of view because, like, there's this kind of tension between you know diversity and we have you know equal representation in a particular field. But obviously, there are some fields that are dominated by women, some fields that are dominated by by men, etc. Why don't we just level set? Why do you believe that diversity? Is important. It sounds like a no-brainer. Of course, we need diversity. You know, it should be fair access. But, but, but really, I mean, because we're all. It's all at the end of the day. It's about business. Um, it's not about diversity. Uh, at least if you, you know, a pure capitalist, right? <laughs> You're running a company. Um, it, it would be nice if more companies had, you know, uh, the the CSR at, at at the forefront versus just profits. But just let's go back to this. In your opinion, why is diversity important? in the context of you know information technology quite simply because diverse teams perform better um you actually you know you, you mentioned a moment ago profits or diversity which do we choose well i argue that the two go hand in hand in fact there's been lots of research um there's a book called the difference um the author whose name escapes me right now but i interviewed him in him in the show um talks about the research that he did um, and there's lots of other research like it that shows that when you have diverse teams, uh, you actually get better outcomes for the company. And, and better outcomes can mean uh, higher quality products, um, uh, more sales, clearer marketing campaigns, and ultimately more profit. And the reason that is, that is true, particularly in the technology industry, you think about the users of technology. Um, Everybody uses technology, like we, we said before. If the people who are creating the technology are only represented by one particular group, how can we expect 
those people to fully represent the needs, thoughts, feelings uh, of the people that they serve. And a, and a classic example, I, I'm, a, I'm an Apple fanboy, so I hate to hate on Apple, but they, they, there was a, a scenario. That, by the way, that was the device that I had to reboot earlier. So uh, oh, right. <laughs> okay. my MacBook well, failed me big time today, but go ahead. Go ahead. Hate on Apple uh, for a little bit. So, I'm in so the mood. When, <laughs> when, when Apple released the, uh, the watch, the Apple watch, um, you know, there are lots of features. It, it ended up becoming a real um, health device, right? It can track your steps, can track your heart rate and so forth. And it was one thing that was missing from that watch that, frankly, I didn't notice. I didn't, it, it didn't occur to me that it was missing, but it was affecting half of the, roughly half of the world population. It didn't have female cycle tracking. Mm. And you okay, ask yourself, well, why did it not have female cycle tracking? Well, it was made by a virtually all male team. And men don't get periods, so it's not something that ever <laughs> occurred to, to any of the men on the team. And then, you know, I think it was series four or series five, I forget which of the watches finally came with cycle tracking and tracking. And I remember my wife saying to me, oh, finally, I can't believe it's taken them so long to get this. And, and, and it was something that, you know, she uses uh, obviously once a month. And, and um, I just thought, I thought that was fa fascinating kind of example of where it, it's, the uh, it's a the very team reflects the product. Yeah. Yeah. It's a very clear um, example. It just totally drives that drives your point home. So you're coming at this from more from a point of view of look, it's just going to help us to be more effective. It's not necessarily the social justice side. I'm sure that's part of it. I mean, we want to make sure that doors are open for everybody in, in, in all walks and every, every field potential that they want to go into. But let me let me ask you this: When you when you um, produced this uh, your movie, mm -hmm. um, debugging diversity, w you know what did you find? What are the the I, well, you know we we don't have all day here, but what are the main reasons or um, that we don't have uh, you know more women in technology, and what are some some best ideas or best practices for making technology um, more inclusive? Yeah, um, you're asking the tough questions here today, Mark. Um, so I think well, you that, made the film, Matt. No. <laughs> <laughs> um, I mean, let, let's start with why there aren't that many women in technology. I mean, there are there are some. It's it's roughly 25% of the technology workforce in the US is uh, is a woman, um, and those numbers are similar in in Australia, and I think they're pretty similar in in, in many parts of the world. Um, and it actually used to be a lot higher. It was closer to 30 to 40% in the 80s. Now, opinions on exactly why we saw a decline are, di are divided, but there's been, there's been quite a lot of studies and quite a lot of research on it. And some of, the, some of the interesting reasons and some of the things that we explore in the show are the, it sounds, it sounds like a trope when I say this, but I mean it in all seriousness. The effect of Hollywood is not to be discounted. Uh, you, you, you go and look at the movies from the 80s and 90s that included some sort of technology um, Revenge of the Nerds, War Games, you know, there's a long list, uh, Weird Science. Uh, I don't know if you've watched any of those movies recently, Mark. I, I hadn't until I started doing this research, but they're really very um, unpleasant to watch looking at it through a, through a, um, kind of with a modern, uh, a modern viewpoint. And that's because, um, you know, it's, it's, there's, there's these nerd stereotypes uh, that people that use computers are kind of, 
um, social outcasts and um, mistreated. And yeah, I, I'm thinking of a Michael Anthony Hall with the bra on his head in a Weird Science. <laughs> right, 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 right. Yeah, it's all that yeah. kind of stuff. And so, you know, you, you think about the popular perception of, of computer scientists and software engineers. This, this is where the nerd stereotype came from. Mm -hmm. um, and you, you then fast forward and look at how many people entered um, computer science degrees or, or, or other vocational training uh, around technology, and it was almost entirely men. But even then, it's it's it, even then it's a small subset of men, the kinds of men that kind of identify themselves as the you know the nerd or coder stereotype. Now, to me, nerd is a great thing. I love being a nerd. I'm proud of being a nerd, and I think we should celebrate nerds. But the the old stereotypes have had a really strong negative impact on uh, how people perceive themselves and how partic in particular women perceive themselves and whether or not they see themselves as being a coder or a software engineer. And then I think the, the other part of it is, particularly in more recent times, um, most people don't have a good appreciation of what technology or coding actually is. You know, and the classic example is using a device, like a, a mobile device or a tablet. Phones and tablets are content consumption devices. They're not content creation devices, at least not in the sense that you can create a software or, or, um, or code. Admittedly, they are becoming more content creation devices and if you look at things like TikTok and so forth. But you can't write a bit of code on your, on your device. And so there's an accessibility component to this as well. Like how accessible is the ability to write a piece of, soft, piece of software or even at the very least to understand what is software? How is, how is this concept of coding connected to the device that I use and the things that I use technology to do every day? I think our education system has a lot to answer for in that regard. Um, I never learned coding at school. I learned it because my friend had a, his dad gave him a, a book on coding and, you know, this is in the mid nineties and I, and I started experimenting and tinkering. If I'd never met him, I would never have had that experience. And I, I think that our education system needs to start exposing kids to it much, much earlier. And I say our, I mean, US, Australia, UK, everywhere, right? Um, and importantly, the education system needs to start showing not just what coding is, but how powerful it can be. It goes back to what we were talking about before, where you know the entire world runs on technology. How is coding connected to that? How, how would having the skill of coding allow me to contribute to the creation of that world? I don't think we do a very good job of that. And, um, uh, and that means that fewer people explore technology as a career, and in particular, um, those that are not necessarily exposed to it through other channels, like, uh, like many of us, dare I say it, white men have had access. Hmm. Makes, it makes a lot of sense. Um, and I, I, again, having lived overseas for 20 years, I, I think, yeah, in the U.S. you can say white men, but if you're, if you're, you know, if you if you've been to India, it's <laughs> race has nothing to do with it. If you've been to China, race has nothing to do with it in the context of those local cultures and markets, right? No, that's true. Yeah, that's yeah. very true. Yeah. But but I get what you're saying. Let me ask you this: um, Do you see any countries doing a better job than others at this point? Like, is there is there you know? A Scandinavian country, for example, that you know, fifty percent of the people in tech are um, are women, uh, or, or anything even close to that anywhere. Frankly, not really. Some some countries do a little better than others, um, but there's certainly no one that's doing fifty fifty. Um, 
I think uh, you mentioned India. India probably is doing a lot better than, uh, say, the US in terms of, um, let's just look at it at one, through one lens, that that's the you know, female representation in the workforce. Um, and I think the reason that, that uh, India does a little better on that front is perhaps they don't have the same stereotypes embedded into their culture that, say, say the US does. Um, mm. So there's maybe less of a stigma for a woman to go into technology. I think I think in Indian society that you, know, you tend to look at somebody as going into a highly lucrative or rewarding career like law or medicine or or now software engineering as as being you know a wonderful thing uh, regardless sure. of, of your you know your your gender or your creed. Um, but still, there are still you know big challenges, and 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 those challenges come from from other parts of the problem that we haven't talked about yet. It's a, it's a deep, it's a deep uh, and complex set of challenges here. But things like sexism at work, um, women's safety. Uh, I did actually interview a uh, a woman who works for a big tech company in in uh, the US, and she said that there was a, a very strong culture uh, or an expectation really for her to uh, to work late. She called it pushing back, so she would. You know, she work until 9, 10, 11 at night. And her challenge was that she never felt safe, physically safe, leaving the office that late at night. So she would have to get a cab and or she would leave earlier. And then, of course, when she left earlier, she would kind of miss out on, on a lot of the other opportunities that some of her male colleagues uh, had. So, you know, there's all those kinds of problems as well. Certainly India does better, but it's not without, without uh, challenges. Um, so yeah, it's a, it's a really complicated problem and I don't think any organization or any country has really nailed this yet. Well, hats off to you for, you know, for exploring it at a much deeper level than than most people and, you know, we all we just this is a process and everybody's trying to learn, you know, and I, and I know friends of mine who have I have three sons, but I I have friends that have daughters and they're all very very passionate and concerned about, you know, access in whatever field that their daughters want to go into. But um, obviously IT is top of mind these days for many, many people. I, I live in the Seattle area. So any Seattle area, Silicon Valley, that area, it's it's hugely important. And, and, and you know, I just my two cents worth, one of the biggest challenges is, you know, 80% of the STEM graduates in the US are are men, you know? And so right. yeah. how can you hire a higher percentage than that if you, if you just don't have the graduate pool? So it's like you said, it probably has to start much earlier on and that, you know, regardless of where you're at, you know, your sex, your race, whatever, you have access to technology and understanding of what it actually is and how it works from a very young age, you know? Absolutely. So um, I totally with you on that. Well, hey, uh, Dan, I really appreciate your, your time and uh, your patience with me on the technical okay. difficulties earlier. Mm-hmm. Um, I, Cypherstash sounds like you're, on a, you're in a, a very uh, high potential space because, like you said, everybody can, is, uh, cares about protecting their data and it's, getting, it's becoming increasingly important. Obviously, there's much more data. Um, and so you're, you're in, a, in a very good space. If um, I think you already gave us your, your website URL, but if, if people want to reach out to you or they want to get more information, do you have any suggestions or? Yeah, I'm happy to share my email address so um, people can email me at, at, at dan at cypherstash.com. Um, you can also follow me on Twitter. Uh, so my, my Twitter handle is, is at Daniel Draper, or you can follow Cypherstash on Twitter as well, of course, at Cypherstash. Um, and of course, you can, you can visit cypherstash.com if you want to learn more about what we're doing. 
Awesome. And if, uh, if somebody wants to watch Debugging Diversity, mm. wh where's the best place to do that? Uh, they can go straight to debuggingdiversity.com. Simple enough. I'm going to put all of those um, URLs, et cetera, into the show notes. Dan, I really enjoyed this. Wish you and your team a great remainder of 2022. Thanks so much, Mark. I really appreciate it. Uh, enjoyed the chat. Hello, welcome to Secure Talk, your trusted source of information on the latest threats, trends, tools, and technology related to cybersecurity and compliance.